0: was created by The Refuge. Wasn't it great? And I just want to say before I get started uh, that, that whoever did this background here up on stage, congratulations, wonderful job. We got some really artists around here. It, it's freaky because last time I looked, they were red, and all of a sudden now they're blue. And, it, it's, it, it's, and how do you get those, light, those boxes to light, light up? I, I, I don't know who did it. I, I don't know who did it. I don't know how they did it, but I like it. It's really good. So thanks, whoever was the artist who put that together. And let me just say, one last time that this, you don't want to miss a tap event. I mean, it's happening. It's not just fun. It's so, so kingdom. Honestly, it's, I, I go whenever I can, Monday nights and, and Fridays, and it's, it's one of the most kingdom things I've ever seen. And I encourage you to, 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 if you can at all get out to this party, come and join us and uh, celebrate the kingdom. There's also, read the bulletin, there's a lot of really good service opportunities, especially for families that that we have at the church here uh, making blankets for the poor, putting, putting together some, some uh, 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 bags of, of of necessities for folks on the street. Just read it and get out to as many as you can because that's what the kingdom is all about. I want to give a thanks to Dave borrow uh, and Dan Kent in the last two weeks who we did an outstanding job preaching. Were they not, We've got some Cracker Jack teachers around here, and they, they are just such a blessing. I uh, feel... So, Really honored that, that, that we have this. And we are officially awarding 46 righteousness points for braving the snow and coming out and being part of this. Yes, that's right. So put that in your, your heavenly bank account as a little extra cushion there. All right. So we're, we're starting this new series this, uh, t- t- this morning uh, called More Than a Name. And our campaign is called Because of the Name. So you're seeing a theme here. And we're going to be looking at uh, the names of, of of Christ that are given in a prophecy in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 9. And we'll spend the, the next four weeks unpacking each of those names. Um, and, and today we're going to be focusing on this, the name Wonderful Counselor. But I'll tell you up front that... Uh, most of this message will be, uh, I'll get to a Wonderful Counselor at the end of the message, towards the end of the message. I, I need to do some unpacking of the kind of the background of Isaiah 9, since they're going to be preaching on it for the next four weeks. I also want to discuss uh, the nature of prophecy, because there's a lot of misunderstanding around that. So there's going to be some teaching that goes into this, and then we'll finally get to the, this, this uh, teaching that, that he is the Wonderful Counselor. So here's the background. Um, oh, and, and as we're going through this, uh, we've encouraged you to invite friends because around this time of year, people tend to think about God and Jesus a little more than usual, and they're more inclined to go to church than usual. So we thought as part of this series, it'd be good to not just kind of unpack Christmas themes, but give, give some teaching about why we should think this is true. Why I think this is true. That's, so there's an apologetic sort of angle on all of this, and that's why we're encouraging you to invite, invite your friends uh, In each message. We'll have some apologetic element. So the background on Isaiah 9 is this. Um, what makes, it's a prophecy about a coming king who's going to change the world, going to permanently bring about some peace. Now, what's interesting about this, the first point I want to make in this, is that it's curious that, that we'd have a prophecy about a king, a future king who's going to transform the world, when God never wanted there to be kings in the first place. God didn't want Israel to have a king. God wanted Israel to model to the rest of the world what it looks like for a people to trust God enough to be their king that they don't need to lean on other human kings. In God's design, human beings were never supposed to rule other human beings. We're supposed to rule the earth and the animal kingdom and serve one another in terms of our giftedness, but there's no hierarchy of power. That comes as a result of the fall. And so God was hoping the Israelites would model this for the rest of the world, but they weren't capable of mustering up that much faith. Uh, it, they, could, they, they could follow God as king as long as there were some really trustworthy prophets there and, and they felt secure. And as long as there were, weren't too many other threats coming at them from the outside. But around that 7th, 8th century, uh, Assyria starts to get eyes on taking over uh, Israel and, and there's all sorts of threatening powers coming. And so the people go to Samuel, the prophet, the prophet judge, and, and they say, we want a king, we need a king. Um, we want to be like all the other nations. We want a king who can lead us and be strategic and military and, 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 and be victory in war, victorious in war. We want a human king. And this grieved the heart of God. You read about it in 1 Samuel 8. God was grieved and aggravated by this. He tells Samuel, they haven't rejected you as a prophet. They've rejected me as a king. Which tells you that, that to the degree that we have our trust and our security anchored in any human king or any human leader authority... Um, to that degree, we're, we're not trusting in God as our authority and as our leader. The Israelites chose a human king and therefore had rejected God. Now, the Lord said to them, you guys, if you do this, it's not going to go well. It's, it, it never goes well. It's, it's a, you're participating in a system that is predicated on mistrust towards God, and it can't go well. That's, my explan- that's not in the text itself. That's me explaining the text, but, but you get the point. It, it, it's it's going to go bad, but they insist, we want a king, we want a king, we want a king. So God says, fine. It's not going to go well, but if you, if you want a king, well, then I will give you a king. And so they, they get this king. And, 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 and what you need to know is that this is a major accommodation on God's part. God's acquiescing to the fallen, unfaithful demands of his people. If this is where you're at right now, then fine, we'll play your game, the Lord is saying. But this is a major combination. It's especially significant because throughout the ancient Near Eastern world where the Israelites were located, uh, the assumption on the part of everybody is that the king is at the center of everything. In all these other pagan countries, the king was understood to be closer to God than everybody else. And the king was uh, chosen by God. The king was, was, uh, mediated the presence of God to the people and the will of God to the people. Everyone assumed that the king was called son of God. He's the only one that was called son of God. Uh, and, and they assumed that the king, the fate of the nation hangs on, on, on this king's relationship with God. If the king is tight with the national God, then things go well. If the king is not, then things don't go well. So when God accommodates their demand for a king, God is, is stooping to now work within the, the fallen, political, king-centered system of the entire ancient Near East. It's a, the king is the center of the religion and the politics because these folks don't separate the two. And, and so by accommodating this, by acquiescing to this, God now is going to play the role of all the other ancient Near Eastern king-centered deities. And so it's not surprising That from this point of the narrative on, you don't find it before here, but from 1 Samuel 8 on, God now takes on the appearance within the biblical narrative of a rather typical ancient Near Eastern king-centered warrior deity. Because one of the main functions of the king was to to lead the people out into war, which is why the Israelites wanted it. So Yahweh now takes on this appearance. But we need to know that When we find God appearing like a typical ancient Near Eastern king-centered deity, and that's what you find throughout the Old Testament after this point, we need to remember that that's not revealing God's ideal will. It's not revealing how God actually is. And you can know that in two ways. Number one, the king-centered warrior deity doesn't look anything like Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is the full revelation of God. That itself tells you that, that there's something else going on here. But also, God himself tells us that he doesn't, he didn't want a king. That wasn't his idea. He only reluctantly acquiesced to it. And so when we see God operating through this king mechanism, we're not seeing God as God wants to be, as God actually is. We're seeing God accommodating the fallen views of his people. God is not a coercive God. He doesn't lobotomize people to have true thoughts about him. Uh, and so if he's not going to do that, he has to embrace people as they are with their fallen conceptions of him, with their fallen ideas about how things should run. And God enters, in, enters into that in order to gradually influence them out of that. And so when we come upon these portraits, and I think every sub-Christ, sub-Christ-like portrait of God fits into this category. What should reveal God to us when we come upon sub-Christ-like portraits of God, such as an ancient Eastern king-centered deity, it's not the surface that reveals what God is like. The surface reflects how God's people think he's like. Uh, what reveals God to us is that God was willing to stoop down to meet these people where they're at. Out of his love, he meets people where they're at and, and, and works within that system to influence them to, to be where they can be. He, he stoops to bear the sin of people and takes on an appearance that reflects the ugliness of that sin. And that's what he does on Calvary, and that's what he's been doing Throughout all of history, which is why Calvary reveals what God is actually like. He's a stooping God. So point number one is, remember that those portraits of God are accommodations. We look through that and we see Jesus Christ stooping. If you want to find out more about that, I've got a book out there you can check out called Cross Vision. And that's the end of my infomercial infomercial for today. So point number two, guess what? It didn't go well. Uh, Surprise, surprise, surprise. God was right. He says it's not going to go well and it didn't go well. Uh, king after king after king after king did what the kings of this world typically do. And they don't administrate justice. They don't care for the oppressed. They don't carry out the will of God. And, and, and so king after king failed them, and things went downhill. To the point where in, in 931, we find a division uh, in, 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 among the Israelites. So the kingdom divides. They get on un- kings, the kings don't get along, and now we've got a diff- Politics has been dividing people since day one. Remember that. So the, the kingdom divides. And, and so can we get a map up here? You have uh, uh, the, the kingdom in the north is Israel, and that's where the ten tribes of Israel are. But in the south, we have Judah, uh, where the other two uh, tribes primarily were. There's a division there. And since they were divided, the whole, the whole country was weakened. And so in 722, the Assyrians up there in the north... They were the most barbaric nation ever in history until the Nazis. Uh, they brutally uh, conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and took them all captives. And the ten tribes eventually just blended in with the rest of humanity. Uh, that happens in 722. The southern kingdom of Judah uh, is still intact, but it's always under a threat. It's little, it has very little defense. Assyria and these other nations are, 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 are rising up, and they're having eyes for this very, very prized land. And so even in Judah, it, it, we're in dark times. These are miserable times. No one's at peace. Everything's unsettled. And, and, and king after king after king after king had been a disappointment. And so in this position, with this national threat coming with it's looking like disaster is around the corner, everything is ominous. There's doom and gloom everywhere. Judah has already seen their their northern brothers and sisters being taken captive and terrible things being done to them, and they're sure that's going to happen to them at any time. Into that mess comes Isaiah. Isaiah is prophesying in Judah right at the time when Israel was being taken captive by the the Assyrians. And in this state of dismal pessimism, he utters this incredible, incredible, remarkable, mind-boggling prophecy as found in Isaiah 9. Let's look at it. He says, for a child has been born to us and a son is given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders. And he is named a wonderful counselor. And by, by the word, we tend to use names as tags. My name's Greg, but it doesn't tell you anything about me. Whereas in Hebraic thought, name reflected your character uh, or your calling. And so to say his name will be called, it doesn't mean that these are names alongside Jesus. This is the character of Jesus, all right? He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. And he will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forward and forevermore. All right. Question number one is, who is Isaiah referring to? Now, we easily look back on that. We see Jesus. But Biblical scholars, when, when, they, when they're reading passages, they, they ask the question, what would the original audience have understood? And they didn't know about Jesus. This is being written 750 years or so before Jesus was ever born. And so scholars ask, who was he referring to here? Who was is Isaiah thinking of? And most of the scholars believe it was Hezekiah. He's referring to Hezekiah, who had just been born. And Hezekiah was a godly king by comparison. Uh, and so they, they think that this was a prophecy about. Hezekiah. Now, here's the thing. Um, Some of the things could be said about Hezekiah, like he's a wise counselor, that would fit Hezekiah. But would Isaiah really have said that Hezekiah, a newly born human king, is mighty God? Or would he say he's the everlasting father and prince of peace? It's It's a curious feature of biblical prophecy that. Uh, there's often an immediate reference to what the person is saying. In this case, it's Hezekiah. I think the scholars are right. He probably was thinking of Hezekiah. But the language that is used of that immediate reference, it, it goes beyond that immediate reference, where it, it, it doesn't seem like it really apply there. It, it, it points to the future. They're, they're, they're saying more than, than it initially meets the eye. Yes, they're referring to this immediate reference, but they're also saying, maybe they're not even aware of it, but they speak beyond that. And so he calls Hezekiah mighty God which you wouldn't think would be said by an orthodox monotheistic Jew of another human being. But not only that, but Hezekiah didn't do what the prophecy says he's supposed to do. His authority didn't continue to expand. Hezekiah, his, his, he didn't establish peace forever. He didn't establish the throne of David forever. Uh, he was not the prince of peace. And so, so when, early, when the early Christians read this passage, they could see that this was not just about Hezekiah. Uh, they saw that this was... About Jesus Christ because ultimately it can only be said of Jesus Christ that he's the wise counselor. can only be said of Jesus Christ that he's the mighty God. Only said of Jesus Christ that he's the everlasting father or everlasting provider and protector. Uh, He he is the prince of peace. And so, yeah, I may have had immediate reference to Hezekiah, but ultimately this points uh, towards Jesus Christ. And um, he alone can fulfill it. So the early church drew this conclusion. And here's a point I want us to see. That if you ever find yourself in times like Isaiah did, where things are pretty negative. If you find yourself in a situation, either personally or, or maybe it's your nation, where there are forces threatening you. Uh, there are, 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 it's looking like national disaster is coming. Maybe there's division in the land. If you ever find yourself in a situation where it seems like leaders are just failing, they're either inept or inept or they're corrupt, and, and everybody sees everyone else's uh, candidate as being, as being uh, corrupt and polluted, and, and, and no one's getting along, and no one's seeing eye to eye, and it seems like the country is becoming frayed, and, and the trusted in, Institutions are dying. If you're ever in a situation like that, I'm not saying we are or anything, but one could imagine. <laughs> what, what the early church saw is you don't put your, your, your hope on the next Hezekiah. Uh, hopefully, the next Hezekiah, the next king, the next president, uh, the next official, whatever, will be better. Hopefully, they'll be good. Hopefully, they'll be wise. Maybe they'll bring a little more decency around. You know, that'd be nice. Maybe they'll do, maybe there'll be some improvement. Praise God for that. But never forget that it's not going to go well. <laughs> It's they're not going to go well. Best case scenario is that it doesn't go well. Uh, the worst case scenario is that it falls apart completely and you have a failed state and then you have mayhem and bloodshed everywhere. So praise God when it doesn't go well because that means at least it's going. <laughs> Hallelujah. But yeah, don't put, your next hope in the, don't put your hope in the next Hezekiah because he may be wise, smart, and good, but there's no Hezekiah. There's no human king, no human prince, no, no, no human dictator, no human uh, president That's going to bring about lasting peace forever. There's no human president or king, queen, or whatever that's going to bring a cessation to all conflict and all wars. There's no human president who's going to establish the throne of David forever. There's no human king, no human system is going to transform the world. The best they can do is it's not going well. We should give praise when we we see it's not going well because at least it's still going. But see, what it means is that as we head into this next election, folks, and, and, and this is me guessing here, I'm not a prophet, but it's not going to be pretty. It's ugly now. It could very well get uglier. Um, it could be unprecedented. And as we head into this, there is a lot of ominous thinking in the air. A lot of toxicity in the air. It seems like things are you know, a lot of things are coming undone. It's like what's going to be happening to America here? Who knows? But as we head into this kind of a situation here, well, of our opinions, you know, is I'm, I, and I don't want any boos or catcalls or hollers or yays, okay? But I'm just going to just lay this out. Some people here probably are really, you know, thinking that Pete Buttigieg will be the guy. He's really, really smart. Uh, others here maybe are fond of of, of Kamala Harris because, man, she's so feisty. I just, she's got such grit. She just gets uh, Of course, we've got our own Amy Klobuchar up there. Uh, you know, uh, wouldn't it be great to have a Minnesotan in the uh, in, in the White House? Uh, and she's so common and brass tacks. It's like, you know, and no, she's, only, she's only got 3%, so chances are against her. But still, so, we can hope. So we have some Trump fans, probably. We've got some uh, Joe Biden fans here, maybe some Bernie Sanders fans. Fine. Have your opinion, right? Uh, and, and we ought to be able to talk about this stuff. You know, we ought to be able to talk about these things as naturally and as calmly as we would talk about a French election if we were ambassadors from America over in France. Because, folks, we're ambassadors of Jesus Christ. We're ambassadors of the kingdom of God, right? This, this present age isn't our home here. We're here to represent a message. And so, so we should be able to talk about these. You know, if you're over in France as an American ambassador, you're not going to get all bent out of shape because someone disagrees with you about who the French president should be, right? That, that's, that's not your primary concern, so also with us. Um, but what it means, though, is that those are all really nice, wonderful Hezekiahs right there. Don't put your hope in the next Hezekiah. If you want a peace, if you want a peace that's going to survive the coming storm and every storm, if you want a peace that doesn't go up and down based on the fickleness of who, who's in office, if you want a peace that, 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 that isn't disturbed when it turns out your rulers are, are inept or corrupt or is not doing things and, and things are falling apart, if you want a peace that can survive even the rising and falling of empires like America, uh, have a center that's not disturbed by any of that, well then don't look at the next Hezekiah. If you want that kind of peace, that everlasting peace, that peace that transcends all understanding, that peace that is impermeable, you anchor your heart and your mind and your life on Jesus Christ. Because he is the one wise counselor. Amen. He's the only one who can be said to be the the, the wonderful counselor and the everlasting father and the prince of peace and the mighty God. He's the savior of the world. He's the word of God, the revealer of God, the creator. Hallelujah. Emmanuel, God with us. He is all those things, the first and the last. And, and so put all your eggs in that basket, all your hope on him. Isaiah, and in, 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 this just this came to me. I haven't mentioned the other services. In Isaiah 26, three, as Assyrian, Assyria is threatening there, and Assyrians invented impaling. They would, they would, just to terrorize people, they would have an attack, round up some people and impale them on posts outside the city that they were on to attack, just to install terror in them. Impaling them, leaving them off of there for three days or longer to die. Terrible, terrible, terrible stuff. As Assyria is threatening, Israel, Isaiah says in 26.3, He shall give him perfect peace whose eyes are stayed on him. Remember that. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. And have a, don't get caught up in the mayhem, the turmoil, the, 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 the venom. It's, don't let yourself be caught up in that. Keep your eyes fixed. It's not that we don't, don't care about any of this because there are consequences for this. I mean, it cannot go well or can go actually really terrible. So there's a difference there. Uh, but but, but, but that's, not, that's not where our heart is. That's not where our hope is. Uh, that's not where our heart is going to be anchored. Our eyes are fixed on him. Which leads to this third point I want to give about prophecy. Some of the things, you know, there's like 300 different things in the, in the, in the Gospels that Jesus is said to have fulfilled. And some of them are actual predictions that Jesus fulfilled. I think Isaiah 9 is an example of that. But most of them aren't. I, 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 here's something that I, I, probably many of us haven't heard before. Um, but if you get this, it's going to solve you from some unnecessary quagmires. Uh, I was evangelist when I was a senior at, at the University of Minnesota, I was uh, trying to witness to this friend of mine who was a fellow philosophy major. And uh, at one point, and he was a very skeptical kind of guy, like a lot of philosophers are, and at one point I said to him, do you know that Jesus Christ fulfilled over 300 prophecies uh, in the New Testament, some of them giving uh, almost a thousand years before he was ever born? And my friend said, get out of here. That never happened. So, I just read Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And he has a page, a couple pages in there, where he just lists all the things that Jesus fulfilled and all the prophecies that he fulfilled. And there's over 300 of them. So I Xeroxed those pages and I gave them to this kid. I go, here's your proof. Next week, we had a Monday night class, so the next week I I went to class thinking maybe I'd meet my friend and he'd be going, I do believe, I do believe the evidence is just incontrovertible. Didn't happen. Um... Yeah, he goes, you got to be kidding me. Did you even look at those verses? Because I hadn't. (laughs) I just was trusting Josh McDowell. I'll never do that again. Sorry, Josh. (laughs) But you see, I hadn't checked it out. I just thought, this guy went and and actually looked at the passages and said, there's nothing, these people aren't predicting anything. Uh, And so I went back and looked at the passages and my friend was Right? Uh, whatever they mean by Jesus fulfills this, they don't mean that, Je- that this was predicted. I'll give you an example. In John 19, uh, Jesus is on the cross, and it says this. That they gave, they, after this, when Jesus knew that all was finished, he's getting close to the end, he said, in order to fulfill scripture, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of wine on a branch of hyssop and held it up to his mouth. Okay, so Jesus fulfilled this. Now, let's look at the passage that he's referring to, and there's only one passage in the Old Testament that could possibly fit, and even that one doesn't fit very well. Here's what it says in Psalm 69. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Now, is this verse predicting anything? Note, first of all, that we're talking about vinegar, not sour wine, but let's not worry about that difference, all right? Um, is this predicting that Jesus is going to be giving, given vinegar uh, while he's on the cross? And the answer is no. It's not predicting anything. It's, this is just simply uh, the psalmist, maybe it's David, who's complaining. Uh, he's complaining about how his friends, his supposed friends, are treating him. And he says, they gave me poison for food and vinegar for water. That's not predicting anything. But if you think it's a prediction, then tell me why. Jesus had to have been given, given uh, vinegar for water because that was supposedly predicted. But why wasn't he ever poisoned? Why didn't everyone, anyone try to poison him? And if this is predictive, how come people aren't wondering, gosh, where did Jesus, why didn't Jesus fulfill the first part of that prophecy? See, the reality is it's not predictive at all. Uh, in fact, in, in Psalm 69, this author says a lot of things about himself, and none of it applies to Jesus. For example, he says, uh, uh, I was falsely accused of stealing. That never happened to Jesus. He says, I'm estranged from my mother. That never happened. My kindred won't have anything to do with me. That didn't happen. Oh, well, I guess it kind of did, but uh, it's not predicting anything. Uh, he says that, that uh, uh, people gossip about him, and he confesses that he's a sinner who may have given unbelievers cause not to believe in Yahweh. I don't think that applies to Jesus. So here we have all this stuff that doesn't apply to Jesus. Not cause stealing, whatever, but he utters They gave me vinegar for water, and all of a sudden, that's predictive? Come on. See, here's what's going on. John knows this, like all the New Testament authors, he knows the Old Testament very, very well. It turns out that this guard, kind of in his act of cruelty, gave Jesus this sour wine to to drink. John sees this, and he remembers that passage about David being given uh, uh, vinegar for water, and he sees a parallel there. So he takes this verse, and he retrofits it into Psalm 69. It's a retrofit. And see, here's the thing. Sometimes on occasion, when they say this is fulfilled, they mean this was predicted. But most of the time, the vast majority, so far as I can determine, of those 300 fulfilled prophecies, there are maybe 12 that are predictive. Three of them are kind of ambiguous. So I think we're dealing with nine solid predictions. But those nine solid predictions are really, really cool, all right? Um, So what what the New Testament authors mean, when they say fulfilled, is often— Not that this was predicted, but that this this event fills out the meaning of of a passage. In fact, since all the early disciples were Jewish, this is relevant. There was common in this time a form of biblical interpretation called Midrash. And one version of Midrash held this kind of thing where an event would happen, and if there were any parallels to something in the Bible, they would say this event fulfills the Bible. But they didn't mean the Bible predicts this event. They meant this event fills to the full the meaning of that passage. It fulfills. It fills up the meaning of that passage. That's all they meant by it. So when, 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 when John, and no, it's John, when it says this was done to fulfill Scripture, it's not saying Jesus did this to fulfill Scripture. John is the one who's interpreting this as this being done to fulfill Scripture. And what John is doing is he's saying that Jesus being given this vinegar for water on the cross, this fills to the full the kind of mistreatment that God's servants have always been suffering at the hands of others, as is the case with David. He draws that parallel. What it means though is that it, it, see, if the guard hadn't done this, no one would be scratching their head saying, gosh, why didn't Jesus fulfill that prophecy about, about about being given vinegar for water? We wouldn't be thinking that because any more than anyone's worried about why Jesus wasn't given poison for food or why he wasn't falsely accused of stealing or estranged from his mother. It, It's it's an after the fact, an ad hoc exegesis, which was perfectly legitimate in that culture. He fills out the meaning of it. You find this all over the place, especially in Matthew. Uh, Matthew, after Jesus runs into, his parents run into Egypt to get away from Herod, and then he gets out of Egypt a couple years later to go to Nazareth. Matthew says, out of Egypt, this fulfills that which was written, out of Egypt I have called my son. Now, He's referring to Hosea 6.1. You go back to Hosea 6.1, there's nothing predictive about it. In fact, the Lord is, is talking about past history. And He's taking, Do you remember the day where I called Egypt, my son, uh, where I called my son, which is Israel, out of Egypt? He's talking about Israel. He's talking about the Exodus. But see, Matthew, he, Matthew isn't saying that it was predicted that Jesus would go to Egypt and come out. What He's saying is, He's drawing a parallel between Israel and, and Jesus because Matthew wants to present Jesus as the fulfillment of Israel. Everything that, it, that was promised in Israel is fulfilled in him. And so he draws this parallel as a way of highlighting the fact that Jesus fills to the full the meaning of the Old Testament, including the meaning of Israel as God's people. So it means that this, among other things, you don't have to like be wondering, gosh, I mean, if God foreknew 700 years earlier that this guard was going to choose to give Jesus vinegar for water, well, then maybe, maybe all the facts about what we're going to choose are already out there somehow. And, and if that's the case, how do we have free will? I mean, if, if this guard, if it was certain he was going to give Jesus vinegar for water 700 years earlier, then he really didn't, he couldn't have done otherwise. If it's certain, it's certain. He's got no free will, so how can he be responsible? Well, whatever you think about that problem, you don't have to go there on this basis, all right? When you read about the scriptures being fulfilled, it doesn't presuppose any of that, and so you don't have to give yourself a headache worrying about that kind of thing. All right, which leads to my next point. Most of the fulfillments are simply filled to the full, but there are some genuinely predictive prophecies, and the nine that I have located, I think, are, are, are really interesting, at least. They're pretty strong. Let me give you an example one. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, I think is one. Here's another, Micah 5. Listen to this. He says, But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are one of the little clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to rule in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient of days. Okay, listen to this. Two things are interesting here. Number one, this author, Micah, he's writing around the same time as Isaiah. In the same circumstances, things are very, very ominous. And they've had a long line of inept and corrupt leaders. And in that midst, he gives this incredible prophecy. But it's clear that he's not just referring to some immediate person like Hezekiah. He goes beyond that. So two things are interesting. Number one, this future ruler will come from Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a little teeny, teeny, teeny little town of nobodies in the middle of nowhere. Um, I mean, it's it's, it's microscopic. It's, It's insignificant. And it's associated with one of the smallest clans in Israel. So this is a little, you wouldn't have thought and this author is saying, 17 years ahead of time, that of all the cities that God could have chosen, could have gone to Jerusalem, which most Jews thought the, the, the Messiah would be born in Jerusalem because that is the holy city, right? Uh, but he bypasses Jerusalem. He doesn't even go to a respectable seaport like, like, like Joppa. Instead, he picks this little, little, tiny, little town in the middle of nowhere. It'd be like if I were to say, hey, uh, when, when the Lord returns, he's going to come to, wait for it, wait for it, Garden City, Minnesota, now, half of you, are, you know, probably most of the padrishners, are thinking, where, where's Garden City? Well, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a little town of about 260 people, about six miles north of Ma- uh, south of Mankato. I actually preached down there one time. A little tiny little farm community. And you go, why would God become incarnate in a little farm community that no one knows about? Well, that's my point. So the question you've got to ask yourself is this. If you're here and you're not a convinced believer, think about this question. How did Micah 700 years ahead of time pick out a town that would seem to be the most random town imaginable and identify that as the birthplace of the Savior? Uh, that's a pretty good guess if you, if you ask me. One idea is that maybe he was speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That would kind of explain things. But if you're not going to go with that explanation, what's your explanation? Maybe you'd think that, well, the prophecy was there, and so maybe the gospel authors just made up that he was born in Bethlehem so to make it look like he fulfilled a prophecy. That's possible. But is it really very likely? Because these people were willing to lay their life on the line and die for their message, and people don't usually die for a lie, something they know to be a lie. But not only that, listen to this. Uh, Despite the fact that we have this prophecy about Micah, 5 uh, 2, despite that, um, no one was looking for, no, no one identified that as a specific messianic prophecy until after Jesus had come. It, it, it just hadn't stood out. And note also this in Micah 5, the, he'll come from Bethlehem, It's a random little town. But even though his origin is in Bethlehem, the author says actually his origin is of Ancient of Days. Now that's interesting. The, 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 the idiom actually just means uh, unimaginably ancient, unimaginably old, indefinitely old, going on and on and on. And it came to be used as a title of God or a title of divinity. Daniel uses it, the ancient of days, oh, ancient of days. So this author, seems that what's going on here is this author, as well as Isaiah, they're getting a glimpse of something. Hebrews tells us that the Old Testament authors got glimpses of the truth. We've got the full truth in Christ, but they got glimpses. And one of the things they got a glimpse of, I think, was that this future ruler who's coming will not only be a human who is born at a particular place in time, though he will be a human, yet his actual origins, his actual being goes back unimaginably in the past. He is, in fact, divine. But this is what we also find in Isaiah. A son will be given, that's a human, Isaiah says, the Son will be given, but he will be called not just Wonderful Counselor, but Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. He's human, but he's going beyond that. He's more than human. And this is what we find in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus is portrayed as being fully human. Fully human, he's born, he grows, he has to learn, he's tempted like we are. In every respect, he's just like we are, 100% pure-grade human. But the New Testament also presents Jesus as 100% pure-grade God. Uh, they, they worship Jesus, and, and, and all these early deci- disciples are all Jewish, and they know that you only worship God, yet they worship Jesus. You only pray to God, yet they pray to Jesus. God's the creator, yet they call Jesus the creator. Uh, they, in fact, they just use the word, word God. Paul says he's God overall, all, blessed forever. They call him Lord, and, and yet every monotheistic Jew knows that only Yahweh is to be called Lord. So another question you need to ask yourself if you're here and you're not a convinced follower of Jesus, but maybe you want to ask it even if you are a convinced follower of Jesus because it'll convince you more. But think about this. Um, what must Jesus have done to convince his fellow human disciples that he was God? What must have gone on? Now, you need to know that these disciples are all first century Palestinian Orthodox Jews. And every day of their life, they recite the Shema Israel: Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And if there's anything foundational to their faith, it's the conviction that there's one God, and that God is not a human. All the pagans around them, they always confuse gods and humans, but that just made the Jews more resistant to that. Those pagans are full of mythology. We're not going to go there. And so they held it as a fundamental doctrine of their faith that God is God and humans are humans, and never the two combine. So despite that being the most fundamental conviction of his disciples, what must Jesus have been like to convince him that he was God? Um, Ask yourself this question. What would it take for me to convince you that I'm God? Maybe that wouldn't be possible under any circumstances. You know me too well. (laughs) Okay, so so suppose a stranger comes up to you in the street and says, I am the creator of the universe. Uh, What would it take for them to prove to you that they're telling the truth? If you have any rationality at all, the bar will be really, really high. It would have to outdo David Copperfield and Chris, what's Angel, and all the other ones. I mean, It would have to be spectacular. Now, I submit to you this. Think about this. However high that bar is for you, whatever it would take to convince you that a, man, a human, fellow human being was God, the bar was much higher for these first century monotheistic Jews. Unless you're an Orthodox Jew, these first century Jews who became Jesus' disciples, they were far more entrenched and committed to strict monotheism than any of us goyim, us non-Jews, could ever be. And so the question is, what must Jesus have been like to, against all of their fundamental religious convictions, to convince them that he was in fact the embodiment of Yahweh, as N.T. Wright says? Now you don't have to guess. Like, oh, I wonder what Jesus was like to, 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 to cause that belief. They tell us. Read the Gospels. They say, look, he went around, he made divine claims for himself. And then he demonstrated his divine claim with the authority that he spoke with. And he left the reputation. He lived a life that he was sinless. Hardly any of us, I don't think, are going to die with that reputation. Oh, he was a sinless human being. No, but Jesus died with that reputation. And they say that he lived this exemplar life, but even more importantly, he did these miracles and he delivered people from demons. And most important of all, when he was crucified, three days later, he rose from the dead. That's what convinced these people against their most fundamental religious convictions, convinced them that this guy was, in fact, the embodiment of Yahweh on earth. Now, here's the thing. I would think it would take something that spectacular, as spectacular as the Jesus that we find in in, in the Gospels, it would take that to, to convince his Jewish disciples that he is, in fact, the embodiment of Yahweh. But if you don't believe that they were telling the truth, or you don't believe that Jesus is as he said they were, then I ask you, how would you explain their faith? How do you explain the fact that they believe, that they're willing to die for this belief, you that, combined with the fact that prophets gave details about this hundreds of years before it finally happened. How do you explain all of that? And from where I'm sitting, I'll just say this. As I've looked at this over and over again, I come to the conclusion that the only reasonable explanation is that these disciples believe for the reasons they say they believe. They, you could imagine that they're lying about the whole thing, but why would these people go out and preach this gospel to the world, watch their kids get fed the lions before they themselves get fed the lions, and they're doing it for a lie? People don't do that. No, they sincerely believe that they're telling the truth. They say they witness these things. You have to decide whether you're going to believe them or not. And I just find that I don't have a good explanation for their faith and their willingness to die for it unless I assume that they were telling the truth. And so, from my am sitting, the reasonable thing to do is to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. It makes sense out of everything. And uh, uh, if you have an alternative explanation for all that, I'd like to hear it after the service uh, because I submit to you that it's very hard to, to find that. So Jesus is... The the Alpha and the Omega. He is the Ancient of Days. He is the one that these prophecies are talking about. And now we turn to the name. The final lesson from this message is is, uh, this name, Wonderful Counselor. He is the Wonderful Counselor. Now note that Isaiah doesn't say he's a wise counselor, which you might have thought. It says he's a wonderful counselor. The phrase is actually the counsel of wonder, or your counsel produces wonder. Um, He's saying that the the counsel from this Messiah, the wisdom from this Messiah, it goes beyond what's common. It's spectacular. It's extraordinary. It causes amazement. It produces wonder in people. Uh, It it, it goes against the thinking of the masses. It cuts through the assumptions of the crowds. There's something unexpected about it. And there's one of two things. It either amazes people or it offends people. Uh, But one thing it doesn't do is leave people the same. Uh, it's, not, it's not common sense. It goes beyond that. And Jesus had this kind of authority, this kind of wisdom. So for example, in, in Luke 4, we read this. Jesus was preaching to his hometown, and, and it says that they were astonished at his teaching because he spoke with authority. That word astonished, by the way, uh, it can be used in a positive way, like, wow, that's spectacular, or it can be used in a negative way, like, that's shockingly offensive, and it's not clear what it should mean in this passage and in several others. Uh, this translation, the NRSV, says uh, that they were amazed. But I, I submit to you, if you look at how the crowd actually responds to Jesus, it should be translated, they were shocked or maybe even horrified at his teachings. Because they, they tried to kill him. His hometown tried to kill him. That doesn't sound like a bunch of people who are just like, wow, that guy's so wise, let's kill him. No, it's like, this guy is offensive. Because see, when you, when, when you have a wisdom that goes against the status quo, and goes against the thinking of the masses, Those who are entrusted with the status quo, with guarding the status quo, because they benefit from the status quo, they'll get irate. The wisdom of God is a subversive kind of wisdom. It goes against what's common, what's ordinary, what's mundane. What it means for us, folks, is that if we're going to be followers of Jesus, we've got to anticipate that we're we're going to be following a wisdom that orients itself completely different from the orientation of most people in the culture. Um, If you're going to follow Jesus... It means you've got to accept that, in some ways, you're going to have to be pushing back on the culture. If you follow Jesus, you're going to follow one whose wisdom might actually offend others, might actually horrify others. So it means that our our common sense has got to be different from the common sense of the world. Our normal has got to be different from the normal of the world. It's, It's normal, for example. It's common sense. In America, whether people say they believe this or not, but the most fundamental assumption of us Americans is that we want our best life now. We're consumers, we want our best life now. Yeah, there may be an afterlife, but that's uncertain. What's certain is right now, and so we're conditioned to pursue our best life now. And that's the kind of that's the normal. But Jesus pronounces woe on all those who seek to have their best life now. Uh, he he pro- pronounces blessings on those who are hungering and thirsting and mourning for the righteousness that is to come. For those who, he says, if you try to find your life Your best life now, you're going to lose it. But if you just lose chasing after that best life now, well, then you're really going to find it. It's a countercultural wisdom. It's an uncanny wisdom. People generally assume that if you can be first, you should be first, because if you're first in line, you won't get the leftovers. Why wouldn't you be first? But Jesus says, blessed are those who defer, who defer to others. He pronounces woes against those who are the I-want-to-be-first chasers. Uh, The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Uh, Blessed are those who aren't trying to grab everything now. they got an eye on eternity, and they're living for eternity. And there's nothing more common than the assumption in this world that the highest value is self-preservation and preservation of your loved ones. And so the common wisdom of the the culture is uh, love your your friends and, and, and family, but hate your enemies. Be careful of those enemies. But Jesus comes and says, no, 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 no. I give you a higher wisdom, a higher calling. Uh, it may look foolish to the world, uh, but that's okay. Follow this wisdom. Instead of retaliating, you don't retaliate. Uh, instead of returning evil with evil, you return evil with good. Instead of having a blow for a blow, you return a blow with a hug. Uh, you've heard it said eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, right? The moral skills of the universe must be balanced. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But Jesus basically says, if you live by eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, all you do is get a bunch of people who are blind and toothless. Uh, he's, he's got a higher kind of justice. Higher kind of justice. Here's what's just the justice of God. He says, Love your enemies. Do good to those who despitefully use you. Pray for those who are opposing you. Whatever nastiness they drill your way, respond by being equally aggressive in a positive way. I, I don't match them, I rather, transcend them. Be above that. Love your enemies. Follow my example, he says. And his example is Calvary, where he could have used the power available to him to easily defend himself and crush his enemies, but instead he chooses to die at the hands of his enemies out of love for his enemies. And then he says, go and do likewise. And folks, see, this is costly, but it is wise. It's countercultural. It doesn't, make, it doesn't jive well with our common common sense, but it is wise. It's wise because in the end, only that which is compatible with the character of God enters into the kingdom of heaven. And the cross reveals the character of God. Uh, every, when, when, when God's kingdom is fully established, everything will be defined by the perfect love of God, and everything inconsistent with that will be burned up. And so it's wise for us to be burning up that stuff now. Turn it away. If it's not consistent with the character of God, be shutting it off. is what Paul says when he says, uh, put on your, put off that old self and put on that new self that's being renewed in Christ Jesus. That's, that, that's the goal, conformity with Christ. It's wise because this is the only way to keep from being defined by your enemy. The person who's against you, if you respond in kind, now they are defining you. They're, they're functionally Lord of your life. Anyone who defines you in a given moment is your Lord. And you empower enemies to define you when you let them produce hatred in you and anger in you. And, and see, now you become like them. And when you respond the way your enemy was towards you, evil with evil, you just lock that in for them. And you make it permanent here. The wise thing Jesus says, is to, to rather live in a way where you're, uh, you don't respond in kind. You don't match. Um, you're not defined by your enemy. Uh, you're defined by your heavenly father. And that's why Jesus says, live in love, or uh, love your enemies, that you may be children of your father in heaven. You reflect the character of the father when we respond with kindness and gentleness and humility and love, even when we have to suffer for it. That's the wisdom of God. It's wise because this is the only way you're ever going to help that enemy. And as kingdom people, we're called to love everybody and therefore have a heart for everybody and and, and care about the welfare of everybody. If you respond to that enemy, however justified you might be by world standards, if you respond in kind, you lock them into that stance. You just justified in their mind what they're doing to you. And so you've just ensured that they'll be your enemy henceforth. But when you respond with love and kindness and gentleness and meekness, and, 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 and have a servant mindset, you open the possibility that they might see the error of their ways and the evil in their heart and repent of that and maybe even come closer to the light of Christ. Uh, it's wise because it's loving, and God's love and wisdom are always synonymous. And finally, it's wise to live this way because this is the way that overcomes in the end. This is the way that's victorious. Uh, That's what the resurrection is all about. This way of living, though it may cost you your life on this end, it is alone what leads to eternal life. And in the end, everything that's contrary to the character of God, as I said, will be burned up and done away with. So here's the thing, folks. The natural thing, the easy thing, is to conform. Most people conform to whatever the normal of their culture is. In fact, it comes natural to us. There's a lot of evidence now that human beings are born imitators. We imitate all the time. And, and uh, which is, if you want to live counterculturally, you've got to have countercultural friends around you to mirror this. Otherwise, we are naturally going to acclimate to the culture around us. The easy thing is to just say, their normal is my normal, but kingdom people, we've got to have a new normal, right? We've got to have a distinctive, beautiful kingdom normal. Yeah, it's normal to try to grab your best life now, normal by world standards, but the wisdom of God says, no, in the kingdom, your normal is, you live with a view towards eternity. Uh, You don't need to grab after your mansion right now, you got one coming, you know, so so you can let that go. Live in a long narrative, not a short narrative. And the wisdom of the, the culture says, if you possess stuff, well, that's yours, you can do whatever you want. That's just common sense. But in the kingdom, that's not our normal. We know that we don't possess anything. Jesus says, if you, if you own any possessions, you can't be my disciples. Luke, Luke, Luke 13. And so we have stuff here, but we offer it up to God. And we realize that it all belongs to him, and we are just his stewards. So to get started, I'll end with this. To get started, I'll end with that. Isn't it cute? I'm so clever sometimes. I just amaze myself. So it's really quite spectacular. So to begin, I'd like to end... Here's the thing, folks. So so we do this every Christmas. The normal thing at Christmas is to celebrate you and your loved ones, right? Most people live in a closed circle family and friends. That's all I care about. Why should I care about other things? Family and friends, I I have a closed circle. Maybe once in a while you go out and do a good deed, but basically your life is enclosed. We're not to have that kind of life. We're to always be having an eye towards the hurting, to the outside of the marginalized, the oppressed, uh, the ones who are the victims of injustice. Wherever we can show the love of God, we want to show the love of God. And that means we have to have a radar that's much more expansive than what is normal in the culture. And so when we celebrate Christmas, the birthday of Jesus, we don't want to do it in the normal American way. We want to do it in the normal kingdom way. And that's why we're having this campaign. We put it out there. I I found this out this week. The average American household will spend $1,576 on Christmas. 30% of them will go into five months of debt to do that. And all the research shows that most of that giving is is obligatory giving. It's giving not because the person needs it or that you particularly want to give it. It's that you're supposed to do it. Why? Because it's normal. And you'll be unusual if you don't do that. Can we develop a different kind of normal? We just encourage you to take your budget... Submit it to the Lord and say, Lord, what is your normal? What would you have me to live off of and spend with my family and friends? And how would you have me invested in others? And we as a church here have an opportunity to make a dent into homelessness and to help out underprivileged families with daycare. And so let's just take some of what we're going to spend on ourselves and under God's direction, following the Holy Spirit, invest it into others. That's the normal of the kingdom. That's the wisdom of the kingdom. That's the love of the kingdom. And that's what we are all about. Somebody say amen. 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 Would you stand? I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come forward here. Um, Hopefully the prayer teams made it out in the middle of this blizzard that we're having. Two inches, and everyone's like, oh, i got to stay home. (laughs) Oh, yeah, anyways. Um, uh, So come up here if you have any need that could use prayer. Or if you're here this morning and uh, you're not a committed follower of Jesus, but maybe something I said has intrigued you, uh, you want to talk about it more, come up here and talk with these folks. They'd love to explain that to you. So as we leave here, can we, be, can we do it as a people who are committed to living in a countercultural wisdom and uh, uh, being willing to create a, a new kingdom normal? And if you're in agreement with that, say amen and go out and love your neighbors. Amen. amen. God bless.